You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. I hope you take your Bibles and turn to Genesis, Genesis 49. We'll be looking at Genesis 49 through 50. And so with that, we will finish our series here in the life of Joseph uh, this morning. And so, a couple things that I hope that this series would have helped with uh, for all of us is one for us to be prepared to suffer uh, and to suffer well and to keep in mind the God behind all that happens that we would trust in Him and obey Him through our suffering. That we would continually be reflecting on how great this God is. What it means for Him to be sovereign. What it is for Him to be faithful in everything. And so that our lives in everything would be surrendered to Him completely and wholly through it all. And that for each one of us, and myself included, would be surrendering to Him more and more each day, reflecting on the great God that He is, reflecting on His worthiness of our lives, reflecting on that He is sovereign over me. And so I hope that in all of this, this is what this series has been building into our hearts, that we would live in response in everything, and trust Him in everything, so that we see how truly great and awesome our God is. So as we continue here, and as we finish up and wrap up this series... Uh, Again, as we are covering these two chapters, we're not going to just read through these two chapters. There are parts I'm going to ask you to read along with me. Um, But again, I just want to encourage you to go back and read through them yourself. Um, Reflect again on all that we've talked about and and just go through the passage yourself. But last week we began to look at the final moments in Jacob's life before he would die. And this time that we've come to here is after uh, he finds out that Joseph, the, the son of his most beloved wife, Rachel, is still alive. And not only still alive, but is the governor, ruler, uh, vizier there in Egypt. Uh, second only to Pharaoh. And that then after going down to Egypt, seeing not just his son Joseph, whom he thought was dead, but also being able to see Joseph's sons. And the joy and gratitude that, that Jacob had, the, the gratitude to God, and recognizing that God allowed that for him. And then after 17 years of living in Egypt near to Joseph, where Joseph could provide for him and the rest of the family, we saw as Joseph is told that his father is ill. And so Joseph takes his two sons to Jacob. And last week we saw Jacob adopt Joseph's sons as his own, so that in the inheritance that his sons would receive in the land God promised to Abraham's descendants, to Isaac's descendants, to Jacob's descendants, 
that Joseph's sons would have an equal share along with the rest of Jacob's sons. And in doing so, he gives a double portion to Joseph. And so the tribe of Joseph is really made up of two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. And though Manasseh was really the oldest, Jacob gave Ephraim the blessing of the firstborn, the preeminent one. And so now as we continue, and we we see these final moments in Jacob's life, we see here where Jacob calls all of his sons to himself. And so we read there in verse 1, it says, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. And that's exactly what he does here. And he does it without mincing any words. He prophetically tells them what will be of each of their tribes. Now, when Moses was writing this narrative this narrative of Jacob's life, and even too with this focus here on Joseph's life that we've been going through. As he's writing to the nation of Israel who have just come out of Egypt, just come out of slavery, as he records for them what each of their tribes would be in the land, the land that they would possess, in this, he is giving them assurance that their sovereign and faithful God would give them the land. And so some argue that this really is the climax of the narrative of Jacob, of the narrative of Joseph, of the entire book. As we look at this passage here in chapter 49, and I believe that's true, and therefore Moses writes this section in a poetic way which then would highlight this section from the rest of the book. And this poetic writing starts in verse 2, when he says, Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. And so in this verse, Jacob is like the wise father whom his sons should listen to. Kind of like what we see in Proverbs, as Solomon is the wise father for his son to listen to. And these first two verses give us a prophetic sense to what he pronounces to each of his sons. As a matter of fact, in verse 1, when he says, in days to come, uh, that phrase is always referring to a prophetic, a a future sense uh, of what is being pronounced. And now, as Jacob makes these announcements for each of his sons, he, he goes from oldest to youngest, at least for the most part. There are some exceptions in there. And so then we see as he starts with his oldest son, Reuben. In verse 3, he says this, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and my first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. So far, that seems pretty good, right? <laughs> Jacob here recites the, the pride and potential that there was there in Reuben as the firstborn son. But this buildup really only serves to demonstrate how far Reuben fell. Verse 4, he describes Reuben as unstable as water, which be a reference to his reckless behavior, being as destructive and unpredictable as flooding waters. He goes on, he says, You shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. This refers to Reuben sleeping with Bilhah, one of Jacob's wives. 
And as we discussed the first time we referenced this event, uh, this would have not only been seen as Reuben fulfilling his lusts, but it really would have been seen as Reuben trying to usurp his father's role as the patriarch of the family. And so there was a deep stabbing of the back in this, uh, a deep betrayal. And now he faces the consequences of that in not receiving the inheritance of the firstborn, not receiving the blessing of the preeminent one among Jacob's sons, not receiving the best and the double portion. As we've already stated, that goes to Joseph through his two sons as they received equal share among Jacob's sons. Then as we come to verse 5, Jacob then addresses Simeon and Levi, and they're taken together. The two of them, like Reuben, their actions resulted in a loss for them. And they're taken together because their actions were together. As they sought out revenge for their sister's rape by the slaughter at Shechem. As they took matters into their own hands and and went beyond even those who were guilty of the act. Jacob did not condone this action, and here he curses them for it. Therefore, among their brothers' tribes, they will not receive an inheritance in the land, but instead they would be scattered throughout the promised land. And ultimately, because of this, Simeon's tribes would lose their individual identity. And the same thing should have happened with with the Levites. They're scattered throughout the land. But there's a reason they didn't lose their identity. Because as we go on from here and we see as Moses brings Israel up out of Egypt, and we come to that scene, that event with the golden calf, when Israel bows down and worships this image that they have made, it was the Levites that responded to Moses and became the arm of judgment on those who had worshipped the calf. So though they were scattered among the tribes and had the potential of losing their identity, really, in the end, they became the most distinct of all the tribes of Israel as they were put in place and separated in service to the Lord. But we see here, these three oldest brothers, they lost their positions. And as we come to then the fourth oldest brother, it could be argued that he, really, in his actions, lost his position as well. And who we're talking about here now is Judah. But remember what we discussed concerning Judah. We started off seeing him as no better than the rest of his brothers. And even as we dove into the narrative, when it shifted its focus onto Judah, there in that part of the narrative, it did not show Judah in a very good light. We see actually Judah's immorality. And then immediately following that, when the focus turns back to Joseph... Uh, We see Joseph's pursuit and determination to keep pure. And so we see Joseph's morality. But nonetheless, as it's describing Judah's life there, we also recognize that it's at that point that we see a change in Judah. When though he acts immorally, when he's faced with his sin, he recognizes his sin. And he recognizes his lack of righteousness. And then as the story shifts again back to Joseph and goes on, as they 
come to Egypt looking for food, and they come face to face with Joseph, we see that it's Judah, the one who originally had the great idea, sarcastically, of selling his father's favorite son into slavery. But then when we see him before Joseph, not knowing it was Joseph, there in Egypt, it's Judah who stands as guard over his father's new favorite son and is willing to give himself in place of Benjamin. And looking at that and going through it, it was then that Ryan discussed what true repentance is. And so we see in these proclamations by Jacob, Judah will really receive a great blessing. He receives prominence. Matter of fact, there has been a lot of confusion in interpreting what is said here about Judah. Judah, who's called a lion, who's like a lion. It's clear that royalty will rise from the tribe of Judah. And this reference of kings will find its fulfillment in David and David's dynasty, but it finds its ultimate fulfillment in Messiah. Matter of fact, as we look at this and what's said here, it could only be said of Messiah's coming kingdom, what we read at the end of verse 10, when it says, to him shall be the obedience of the people. Sure, other kings had different degrees of obedience of the people, but it's really only going to be Messiah who has the obedience of the people. Or two, only what is read in verse 11 could be said of Messiah's kingdom. When it says, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. I mean, think about that. Tying your donkey, tying the colt to the choice vine. No one would do that. Why? Because the donkey would then eat the vine and it would ruin it. But in the kingdom of Messiah, in the ultimate son of Judah, there will be such fruitfulness and prosperity that it wouldn't be a big deal for the donkey to ruin that vine, that choice vine, because every vine would be a choice vine. And we see, too, as it goes on, it says, because he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Again, that's something nobody would do. No one would use good wine in place of water and wash their dirty clothes in it. That would be a waste. But the idea here is that wine flows like water. So it's being used like water in this imagery. And we also see the the reference to wine and milk in verse 4. All of it depicts prosperity. So this is what is announced for Judah. And then Zebulun is announced next. Verse 13 says, Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his borders shall be at Sidon. And verse 14 says, Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. Now that tribe uh, would settle in the Jezreel Valley. It would be good land, but it would be an area that would be occupied by others, and therefore they would often be forced into labor. And then come Jacob's son, Dan, whose name means judge. And so Dan would stand for righteousness for the people, at least he should have. But Jacob foresaw the sin of Dan, and he saw the fulfillment of violence and unfaithfulness. Uh, Maybe Jacob foresaw the idols that would be built there in that territory. And foreseeing idols or whatever the affliction would be for Dan, 
We see following this announcement in verse 18, and, and maybe even to anticipating what he's going to say about Gad, verse 18 says, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Thinking of what will be of his sons and his sons' descendants and the tribes that come from them and, and in seeing in this some unfaithfulness. And yet, no matter what would be of them, no matter how unfaithful his sons may be, Jacob trusted in God's faithfulness. That God would bring about his deliverance. And so again, we see in this text, as we've been seeing throughout the whole series, this faithful and sovereign God. The faithful and sovereign God is the God of Jacob. It's the God of Abraham and Isaac. It's the one true God. And so then he comes to Gad, whose name in Hebrew sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for raid or raiders. And so there's a play on words here that, that his territory would be raided, but ultimately they would have the victory. And Asher would have rich soil in their territory. And so his tribe would have food that was fit for kings. Neftily, along with Asher, they would be the most northern territories, at least until Dan would move from where they were, and then they would become the most northern. But before that, they would be the most northern territories, with Nephtali having this northern frontier to be free and to be loose to roam. And then we finally come to the blessing of Jacob's favorite son, Joseph. It's the most lengthy pronouncement of Jacob's. Joseph's tribe again, has already been noted, is made up of Ephraim and Manasseh. And Joseph's tribe, these two tribes together, would have fruitful blessings that would go beyond themselves. Joseph's tribe would be objected to hostility, and yet would be strengthened by Jacob's mighty God. You know, Jacob felt more blessed than his fathers before him, and he wanted such blessing for his son Joseph as well. And then verse 27, we come to Benjamin. He says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoils. Now this announcement is kind of interesting to ponder, especially when you consider the fact that this is the announcement of his second favorite son. And yet it's amongst, if not the shortest, of all the announcements. And the Benjamites, though, they would be aggressive warriors. Again, ravenous wolves. And they would have, therefore, military accomplishments. We'd see these when Israel is settling in the land and into the era of the judges, and even at the beginning of Israel establishing kings. And so with the blessings completed, with Jacob announcing all of this for all of his sons, and as Moses then is recording this for Israel, newly out of Egypt, newly out of slavery, uh, we should think of what this meant to Moses' original audience. One, it would indicate that Joseph, he, he led his brothers. But ultimately, in the end, it would be Judah who led the tribes. But two, this would demonstrate God's faithfulness and sovereignty, and therefore the assurance that they had that as descendants of Jacob, they would indeed live in the land. The land that God had promised them. Their future as a nation was in God's hands. 
And this should have been encouraging for them because on their way from Egypt to the promised land, they would face trouble. They would face hardship. They would face battles. But therefore, as Moses is writing to them so that they would know their God, they would know his faithfulness, know his sovereignty, knowing him so that they could trust him and obey him. Actually, we know that once they get to the land, (laughs) trusting and obeying him is the issue, right? They fail to. But they should have been able to remember the assurance that they had from their father Jacob of the future of being in the land. Because in all of this, the God of Jacob is faithful and sovereign. And the God of Jacob, the God we read of here in this passage, is our God. The same God who is faithful and sovereign. No matter what turmoil we face, no matter what battles we go through, we we have His Word to stand on. For us, if we are trusting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins, for our right standing before God, we should be able to remember the assurance of God's Word. The assurance of our future. The assurance of our adoption and, and the completion and knowing the fullness of our redemption. You know, we can see throughout the Old Testament God keeping His promise to Israel. And we can rest assured that God will sovereignly and faithfully keep His promises to us as well. And therefore, why should we live in fear? And whatever's going on in the world around us, whatever the turmoil is, whatever the struggle is, we should know our God, just as Moses wanted Israel to know their God, so that they would trust Him and obey Him. So in knowing Him, we should trust Him and obey Him in everything. Whatever may be taken away from us, we understand that God holds His promises as true. And then read with me in chapter 49, verses 28 to 33. It says, All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last, and he was gathered to his people. We saw earlier Joseph was the one put in charge of the funeral arrangements for Jacob. But Jacob here makes sure that all of his sons are on board and will do their part. Because remember, going back to Canaan had meaning. Bearing Jacob, there was a demonstration of where his descendants really belonged. They shouldn't get too comfortable there in Egypt because that really was not their home. So a funeral back in the land of Canaan would remind them where they truly should be. So they shouldn't get comfortable there with all of the extravagance of Egypt, with all of the things that that could tempt them to want to just settle there and, and make that their home. 
They had to recognize they were only there temporarily. I think there is a parallel that we can make. And we could be tempted on this side of eternity to make this our home. (laughs) To settle in here. to, To hold on to all the comforts that are here. But this isn't our home either. We're looking to our eternal home, right? We're sojourners here. Our place is to be with God. But sometimes we just we want to settle in and we live as if this is our final resting place. And so we hold on to the comforts and when those comforts are threatened, then that's when we start to live in fear. Because we're holding on to the here and now instead of focusing on what eternally matters. And that could lead us to all kinds of compromises and sins that we can justify disobeying the one who is truly our king. But whatever we lose, whatever we go here on in this life, this life is not our home. And God brought great burdens and allowed for injustices upon his people. There was a new Pharaoh that would forget about Joseph, and he would make them very uncomfortable in Egypt. And who I believe God allows for many different things to come into our lives, to shake us and to make us realize and remember this is not where we should get comfortable. This is not where we hold on. This is not where we set our eyes as if this is where we will always be. But in those sufferings, in those pains, and whatever we lose, we remember our home is to be with God. This is not where eternity settles. And so if we lose our freedoms, if we lose our comforts, if we lose our health, Those things we remember were never promised to us in this life. Though, if we have them, they are precious gifts of God's grace. Yet they do not compare to the promise of glory and the hope of being with Christ that we are given if we are trusting in Christ alone. That we will be with Him for all eternity. And is that not our great hope? Is that not our great joy? That we will be with our awesome God. We will be with Him who is faithful and sovereign. We will be with Him whom we love and is the treasure of our hearts. That is what we look forward to. That is what we live in light of. So Israel too, Jacob wanted his sons to not live there in Egypt as if that was their final home. And then as we come to chapter 50, when Jacob does die, Joseph seems to forget all the dignity of his governing position and he just falls on his father's face, weeping, and he kissed his father. Joseph then has the physicians prepare his father's body for burial. His father's body would be embalmed, maybe preparing it for a, a later burial. And some suggest, too, that he has the physicians embalm Jacob's body, as opposed to the priest, in order to avoid the Egyptian pagan rituals that would go along with it. Now, at this point, I think another aspect of God's promise to Abraham would be good to talk about and mention, although I I probably should have brought it out more throughout this series. But in everything we discussed of God promising Abraham land and descendants and uh, blessing, he promised to make Abraham's name great. And we, at one point, we see his great-grandson, Joseph, bless the world with wisdom and storing up during the time of plenty, the seven years of plenty, so that 
people would be saved during the seven years of famine. And so Egypt comes to Joseph, and not just Egypt, but people from Canaan, even beyond his brothers and other places in the world, come to Joseph to be saved. And again, Joseph is is made second only to Pharaoh, and Egyptians bow the knee to him and honor him. And now that his father has died, now that Jacob, Abraham's grandson, has died, the Egyptians weep for him. And Pharaoh gives Joseph permission to go bury his father in Canaan. And with him went this caravan of Egyptians, the servants of Pharaoh's house and the elders of the house and and the elders of all of Egypt. This royal procession going from Egypt to Canaan, all of this demonstrates how important Joseph was in Egypt. And so how important the descendants of Abraham became. As God said that he would make Abraham's name great. And now all of this that we see here in the text for Abraham's grandson. I mean, do we see how faithful God is? Do we see that God works in everything? Do we see that God keeps his word? And in everything in this life, as we can't understand, well, how is this going to come together? You know, we, we talked throughout this series about Romans eight twenty eight, and, and how can this come together for good? How can this really be a good thing? How is this going to glorify God? What is this going to be in our nearsightedness? We can't see. We can't understand. But can we trust that this God that we read of, who keeps his promises and works all things for his honor and glory, that this is the same God that we follow, the same God that is sovereign in everything that happens throughout our lives? Do we know that this is the same God? Do we trust that? Are we trusting that when we take matters into our own hands? Or that when we run beyond our responsibilities that he has given us, as we live in fear and worry, or when people hurt us and we hold on to grudges? Are we trusting that this is the same God that is sovereign in our lives over everything, working all things together, keeping His Word? Do we live in light of His faithfulness and His sovereignty? I mean, this is the God that we just sang about. The God, when we sang, great is thy faithfulness. O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions. They fail not. As thou has been, as he was for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as he was for Joseph and the rest of the tribes of Israel, as he was for them, as thou has been, thou forever shalt be. Forever. You believe what you say. This here in Genesis is that God that we sing about. The God who we will sing about to close. We sing who has held the oceans in his hands. Who has numbered every grain of sand. Kings and nations tremble at his voice. All creation rises to rejoice. Who has given counsel to the Lord? Who can question any of his words? Who can teach the one who knows all things? Who can fathom all his wondrous deeds? And what's the answer to all those questions? No one. This is our great God. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Sovereign and faithful. Sovereign in all the ups and downs of life. Sovereign even in death. 
Now, as we see that Jacob has died, uh, it makes me wonder uh, about all of us here. Have you ever known a situation where in a family there was some sort of conflict in that family, but everyone just kind of internalized their grudges, they, they kept a muzzle on their bitterness, while mom and dad or, or grandma and grandpa, while they were still around and still alive, But once they died, the peace, which really wasn't real peace anyway, because obviously it only lasted while mom and dad were around or grandma and grandpa were around. But once they died, that peace died. And there was this family feud. It's not an uncommon story, unfortunately. And as we look at our text here, that seems to be what Joseph's brothers expected. Now that dad's gone, is Joseph going to stop playing nice with us? Now that dad's gone, is Joseph going to follow through with revenge against us? See, the problem is that they, they lived in his land. They lived in Egypt. <laughs> and so if he decided that he was going to bring revenge on them, he could really do it. I mean, he's second only to Pharaoh. And so not believing Joseph's forgiveness towards them, uh, they, de- they decide to make up this plan. And we see this plan here in verses 16 to 17. So, so they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sins because they did evil to you. So then the message from their brothers and says, And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. So they, they send this word to Joseph saying, you know, this is what dad said. He, he said to forgive us. So, so please for, forgive us. And really, it seems unlikely that Jacob would have actually said this to them. Because if he was going to say it, why not just say it straight to Joseph? That, that would seem more effective. But again, they they are not believing Joseph's forgiveness of them, and and so they concoct this plan, and then they try to tug at Joseph's heartstrings. And so Joseph, though, as he reads this, he weeps. He cries. I I mean, we've talked about how this whole time, it's been evidence, the forgiveness that was in Joseph's heart, that he did not harbor bitterness or, or want revenge against his brothers. It's been clear. And so then we see... Joseph's brothers do themselves eventually come to him. And if you would read with me in verses uh, 19 to 21, this is what it says. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, as you know, and as I pointed out from the beginning of this series, I think that this right here is the crutch of the narrative of Joseph. Joseph's brothers are so unable to conceive the depths of Joseph's forgiveness towards them. And so they fear. And we see Joseph's response to his brothers. And as we've seen before, that he knew that though his brothers were responsible for all that they did against him, ultimately, they did what they did by the sovereignty of God. 
Joseph recognized God's good purpose in everything that he went through, in everything that he faced. But what we also see is that Joseph also kept in perspective who he is and his position in all that took place. Again, Joseph said in verse 19, Am I in the place of God? Now, they're expecting Joseph to enact vengeance against them. But why would he act in vengeance against them? He's saying, am I in the place of God? Why? Because whose place is it for vengeance? Was it Joseph's? Is it ever mine? Is it ever yours? No. Vengeance is God's place and God's alone. Moses would later write in the law, God's words, when he says, vengeance is mine. Joseph knew he had no right to punish his brothers for their sin or to take justice into his own hands. But he could trust all that happened to the faithfulness and sovereignty of God. The God who is sovereign in all the ups and downs of of Joseph's life. The God whom Joseph knew was completely sovereign. And so that's the question for us. Do we know that God is completely sovereign? That's hard for us to understand and take in. Again, as we talked over and over again, and and how this passage itself shows, and we've already seen it earlier as Joseph talked to his brothers, that it's clear that Joseph's brothers were responsible. And we see throughout Scripture, all of us, all mankind, we are responsible for the choices we make. We're responsible for our actions. And yet, even though we are responsible, God is sovereign over all of it. God is completely sovereign. You know, sometimes we, that doesn't sit well with us. Even as we think of our own pain and have we've been hurt and all the things that we've gone through, we don't want to put that responsibility on God. That, that doesn't work with our theology somehow. And so we want to get God off the hook. But even in this series, we've already gone through passages where God does not shirk his responsibility in his sovereignty. He says that he is the one who brings all things about. He is the first cause of everything for his good purposes, for his workings in our lives. Again, that does not remove man's responsibility. And and so again, how, how do those things go together? I don't know. Not God. But God is sovereign over all things. So again, Joseph said in verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. His brothers meant it. God meant it. But his brothers meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Because God is good and righteous. And so even in all these things and understanding God's sovereignty, we have to remember he's good. And so all of his purposes are good, but at the same time, we can't diminish his sovereignty. Because this is the God that he is. This is how he has revealed himself in his word. And to diminish his sovereignty, I truly believe, is to diminish his greatness and how awesome he is. That this is the God who literally does as he pleases. You and I can't just do as we please. It could please me to be able to fly. Guess what? It ain't going to happen. I'm not going to be jumping off any roofs anytime lately. 
And if you know me, you know I'm not even going to get up on those roofs. But this is the God who works all things out according to the counsel of his will, to the purpose of his glorious grace. He's great and awesome in all that he is and all that he does. We do not want to diminish the sovereignty of God because we cannot diminish the person of God. He is who he is. Beyond our comprehension, beyond our understanding, he is the great and awesome God and his greatness shows us that he is worthy to be praised. He is worthy of our lives. He is worthy of our submission to him. He is awesome. And we would live to please him in everything. And then read verses 22 to 26 with me. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Mekir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Again, just as we talked about with Jacob... What was on Joseph's mind? What was important to Joseph? God's purposes and God's faithfulness to do what he said he would do. That he would bring them up out of Egypt and he would give them the land he promised. We see in this the hope and the guarantee that God would fulfill all that he said. God would give them the promised land. And Joseph would die with confidence in his God. That God would do as he said. That God could do what he said because God is sovereign. And that God would do what he said because he's faithful. He's faithful. And again, this God that was Joseph's is our God. He's the God who is. And so my friends, do you know this God? Do you know this God who is mighty and sovereign? This God who is good and righteous and faithful? Do you know this God? My friends, as we sit here this morning, you can only know this God if you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. You can only know this God if you recognize your sin against this God. You recognize your responsibility and all that you've done in breaking His law and not keeping His word and not living for the honor and glory that He alone deserves. And when we recognize that, we can recognize our need for a Savior that we've earned his wrath and his displeasure. But if we would repent of our sin and put our faith in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone, we will be saved. And through Jesus Christ, we can know this God. We can know his promises. We can know his sovereignty and his faithfulness in our lives and know the guarantee that he has given us that we would stand on his word knowing that he is faithful to fulfill his word so all his promises are true. And if I am in Christ, am I trusting in Christ, then I have the promise of being with this awesome and faithful God for all eternity. To give Him the praises and glory that He deserves. My friends, do you know this awesome God, this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Do you know Him through faith in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone? 
I hope, as we've talked about his faithfulness and his sovereignty, as we've seen that sovereignty working throughout Joseph's life and seeing that it works through our lives as we are trusting in Christ, that, man, you would be driven to want to know him. And if you are trusting in Christ, you would be driven to want to know him more and to live your life for him in everything because he is worthy. Behold our God seated on the throne which he reigns sovereignly over all things. Come let us adore him because he is worthy. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.